we're going to continue our sermon series on the mission of the gospel this week. The mission of the gospel. And what we started off last week was examining how the gospel message is, is not just a belief that we hold, but a calling that we have as the people of God. And, and I want to start with this quote from a guy named Daryl Guter who wrote a uh, book called Missional Church. And he says this, and I, and I think this is really the guiding point for us as a church for this series. And he says, mission is the result of God's initiative. Rooted in God's purposes to restore and heal creation. Mission means sending. And it is a central biblical theme describing the purposes of God's action in human history. God's mission began with the call of Israel to receive God's blessing in order to be a blessing to the nations And God's mission unfolded in the history of God's people across the centuries recorded in Scripture. And it reached its revolutionary climax in the incarnation of God's work and salvation in Jesus, ministering, crucified, and resurrected. God's mission continued then in the sending of the Spirit to call forth and empower the church as the witness to God's good news in Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Amen. That's a powerful statement. That's a big calling. That's a big narrative that we live out of. And so we we come to this understanding then that the the gospel isn't something that we just believe. Again, it's this calling that we have where when we talk about the gospel, it gives us a life as a church and it motivates us to do the mission of God in this world for the sake of God's glory and His kingdom. And so this is really the premise that we're examining this next month into this series. And, and today we're looking at the, this restor, restoration between God and humanity. And so how does the mission of God relate to God restoring relationship with us as his creation? And really what we're talking about is people who are outside of the presence of God, of the kingdom of God, and the family of God. They're truly outsiders to God. And it's all about God restoring relationship with them. And so we're really examining this concept of being outside of God's presence and God's desire to restore that with us. Now, who here in their life has ever felt like an outsider before? Anyone? (laughs) The majority of us, right? The the whole concept of we felt like outsiders, another sense we're new to something or we feel like we we don't belong somewhere or we're in a company of people that we're not really connected to. And and my life was, was very much like that in the sense that I lived in 19 different houses by the time I was 17. So my family moved around a lot. We were always in different communities I spent my entire upbringing being the new kid, right? And as the new kid, you're naturally what? The outsider. And so much of my upbringing was realizing that I was the outsider and trying my best to sort of infiltrate and get connected into small communities of friendships. Now, was this a difficult endeavor? Yeah, it was very difficult and And even it made me realize just the challenges that come of being an outsider. And I think this is something we often forget as a church body. 
we as a church body, we're all pretty familiar with each other, right? We're, we're very much a family, but for someone to come who has never been here before, is that not an extremely intimidating endeavor? It's very intimidating. They're coming as an outsider who has no idea what to expect, who has no idea what relationships are here, who has no idea what's going on, who has no relational connections. And so there's this, there's this difficult um, context in which they are stepping into. And we often forget, again, how uncomfortable and difficult that can be. But today I want to read a story about how God actively pursues outsiders, how God is actively trying to reach and restore relationships with outsiders. And to do that, I want us to look at a story in John 4. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to John 4. We're going to be going through a a narrative this morning together. And I'm going to read for us right now verses 1 to 26. So it's a long section of passage of Scripture, but I want us to hear the story together. And so John 4, Jesus tells us, or we're told about a story of Jesus and the woman at a well. So this is how John 4 begins. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John referencing John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. That's a key statement there. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field of Jacob that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is another important point. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank for it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So let's just pause in the story for there for a little bit, and then we'll continue on, but there's some wild factors that is, is going on in the story. Um, there's some wild things that is actually pretty subliminal in the story if we don't understand what's going on, but what do we see? We see Jesus traveling from one region to another, right? And, and what area of land did he pass through? Samaria. Now, now that's interesting right now because there's three paths that he could have taken. And they're longer paths, but they were often the path that Jews would take because Jews didn't want to pass through the land of Samaria. And, and Jesus, fascinatingly enough, it says in this passage that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, yes, it was shorter, but what we're hearing here is not just a convenience, a statement of convenience. What we're actually hearing is this theological statement that has everything to do with the mission of Jesus. He had to pass through this, this area not because of convenience, but actually because of the mission that he was called to. And so Jesus meets this Samaritan woman where this communal well would be, but she's there at midday. Now, why is this a factor that she's there at midday? It's the, the hottest time of the day, and so it's no surprise that no one else would be there. Now, why is she coming in the middle of the day? She's an outsider. She's, she's avoiding the community. She doesn't want to engage with anyone. She's a woman that probably lives with a lot of guilt and shame and, and doesn't want any relational connection with people because they're just going to hurt her more. And so she comes in the middle of the day trying to avoid people. And, and it's obvious when we read the rest of the story because Jesus brings up a massive sin that's going on in her life. How many husbands did she have? Five. And the guy she was with now wasn't even her husband. She almost gave up on marriage and gave up on relationships, yet still wanted that intimacy. And so here we have this woman with a very questionable reputation because of all these personal failures, and we see that she has really been rejected by the community. And yet something beautiful that we see is that Jesus simply willing to be there among her is that Jesus knows her rejection from the community Yet he longs to restore her. 
And, and what I'm going to be looking at now is just all these ways that Jesus seeks to restore this woman. And so let's continue. Uh, a little homework tells us why there was a specific reason that Jesus took this path, and they were sort of wondering why he took this path, but Jews avoided Samaria at all costs. It was very much an enemy territory. Uh, it was very much an outside territory. Now, anyone ever been in a place where they sort of felt they shouldn't be? <laughs> I remember when my family first moved to Prince George, and uh, we lived in Vancouver Island before that. And there's a WHL team in Vancouver called the Vancouver Giants that I would cheer for. And so when they were playing what's called the Prince George Cougars, uh, we went to that game. And so me just moving to Prince George, who do you think I was cheering for? Vancouver Giants. Now, how do you think that made people from Prince George feel? <laughs> yeah, I was, I, here I was. I think I was like a 13-year-old kid just cheering for the team that I sort of grew up with. And now I have all these people who are antagonistic against me. And actually someone, I think it was like a 30-year-old guy, and I was 13 at the time, he took my hat and he tried to throw it on the ice. <laughs> So just antagonism, right? There's, there's this natural enemy territory, and that's exactly what Samaria was to the Jews. Um, in the 8th century, what happened was the northern kingdom of Israel was taken over by the Assyrians, and the majority of the Jews were kicked out, and all these other nations came in, and Samaritans were sort of seen as the half-breeds who intermingled with some of the Jews that were left over, and there was all this historical context of things that they did that just basically created this enemy animosity between the two. And, and so Jesus, as a Jew... This woman is surprised that he's even talking to her. And, and what you have is in her mind, there's, there's all this deep-seated racism of Jews towards Samaritan. There's this generation of pain and prejudice and pride all working to keep these people separate. And yet Jesus simply comes into her presence and acknowledges her and engages with her and talks to her, and even tries to offer restoration. And so another way that we see Jesus offering restoration is he knows this deep racial rejection that she experiences by his people, and yet what do we see? We still see this desire for him to restore her. Now, what, what's another facet that's sort of going on behind the scenes in this story? Well, we have a man and a woman speaking together, which in our context, we, we sort of read through the story and it doesn't seem like a big deal to us. But, but in this context, we, we have something that is quite taboo going on here. We have a woman and a man not knowing each other, speaking to each other, which was sort of, again, taboo in public. And even there was writing in the rabbis during the time that it says, one does not speak to a woman on a street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not one who is not his wife. And what you see in that culture is this, this almost gender inequality and this, this lowering of the status and value of women. And Jesus comes and he realizes that, yet he engages her nonetheless. 
And so this is quite controversial simply for him engaging this conversation, um, which is why we see the disciples later on even surprised that this conversation has happened. And yet what do we see? We see Jesus knowing that her value and dignity has been distorted as a woman by her culture, and yet he longs to restore her. And so what we see in this narrative is this this missional aspect of Jesus looking at a woman, seeing all the things that keeps her as an outsider, all the things that keep her distinct from him, all the things that should separate them and keep them apart, and yet Jesus begins to break down everything. He breaks down all of these aspects, seeking to restore her. Now, the beautiful thing that Jesus offers is, is how does he plan in ultimately bringing restoration to her? What does he offer her? Living water. Living water. What is this all about? This is all about Jesus inviting her into the life of God. A life that will sustain her, not just as temporary as water will, but a life that will sustain her for eternity. A life that will quench all the thirst that she has in life. A, a, a living water that will satisfy everything that she longs for in life. And, and what he realizes is, is here's a woman who's an outsider who has all these things working against her. All this form of rejection. All this form of devaluing. And he sees something. See, he doesn't use the the concept of five husbands to condemn her, does he? But what he does is he points out something that she's been trying to find. She's been trying to find acceptance. She's been trying to find intimate relationship. She's, she's been trying to find some sense of belonging. And, and Jesus realizes this in the woman. He says, this isn't going to satisfy you. This isn't going to ultimately restore you. He says, only I can and the water I have for you can. And so we see Jesus treating this woman with such dignity and value and restoring her life. So it's, it's quite beautiful what we see because we see Jesus offer this living water to let her know that her thirst for dignity and value and respect is even greater than she might realize. And instead of condemning her and simply bringing up her sin to bring controversy and guilt and shame in her life, again, Jesus knows everything about her and yet longs to restore her. Longs to restore her. See, uh, something that Tim Keller has said that's always really stuck to me. He said, to be loved but not known is pretty superficial, isn't it? In other words, if someone says that they love you, but they don't actually know you and actually know all the, the, the details of hurt and pain and sin and in your life, that's pretty superficial, right? That's like saying you love your dog. Can you actually love your dog? Do you know what your thoughts of your dogs? Your dog might be the most wicked, evil person you could ever imagine, and yet you love them, right? That's sort of that superficial kind of love, right? And then to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. 
In other words, if, if someone truly knows who I am, if someone truly knows me, I know I'm going to face rejection. Uh, I know I'm just going to continue to be an outsider. Uh, I know I'm just going to continue to experience the animosity against me. And so to be known but not loved is our greatest fear. And, and what we see here in the story of Jesus is this love of God that knows everything about us. Jesus knew everything about this woman, didn't he? He knew all the dirt on her life, so to say. He knew all the deep sins that she was part of. And yet, instead of this fear that she had of rejection, which she continually experienced over and over again, what we see Jesus doing is loving her and restoring her. That's the beauty of our God, isn't it? I don't think we have any human relationship that can even compare to that where God knows more about us than our spouses, than our closest friends, than our family. God knows each and every detail about our life, and yet He loves us. And so our greatest fear of not being fully known or being fully known and not loved is eradicated by the good news of who God is. And so what this does is it really fortifies us in life to truly experience love. And this is what this woman is experiencing in Jesus, is this restoration. And so what do we see next in the story? After Jesus has done all this work in his conversation to bring restoration to her, we read this in verses 27 to 30. It says, Just then... His disciples came back. They, what, that he was talking to a woman? They marveled. They're like, what is going on here? This is so culturally taboo. Like, Jesus, this woman's a Samaritan. Jesus, this woman, you shouldn't even be talking to you because you're a rabbi. Jesus, this, this woman has all these things that you should, sins that you should just push her away and keep her from you. They were marveled that this conversation was even happening. They were shocked that this was taking place. Now, is this a failure of the disciples? I'd say it was. That why? Because they see this woman through a completely other lens. Jesus sees her to restore her. How did the disciples see her? What controversy, right? They see you shouldn't talk to this woman. We shouldn't be engaging this conversation. Jesus, what's going on here? Why, why are you simply engaging a Samaritan woman who's had five husbands, who's already been rejected by the community? And so their minds is just wrestling. All, all they can see is the cultural and the social and the racial and the gender barriers. That's all they see. They don't welcome her. They don't talk to her. They simply question Jesus. Now, the woman, on the other hand, experienced the restoration of God so powerfully that it says this in verse 28. It says, So the woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, What did she say to them? Come and see a man who what? Come and see a man 
that told me all I ever did, right? In other words, this is a, a man who knows me more than anyone else and yet still showed love. And what was her immediate conclusion to Jesus? Can this man be who? Can this man be the Christ? In other words, can this man be who God said he would bring restoration and reconciliation to the world through? Why? Why did she come to that conclusion? Because she experienced it. She experienced the restoration that God had to offer. She experienced the reconciliation that God had to offer. And she is absolutely blown away by this interaction with Jesus. She has experienced this love and care from God himself. And, and so we read this story, and it's a very powerful story. But what it needs to remind us is this isn't just a story for us to look back on and say, look how wonderful Jesus is. Yes, we say that. Yes and amen. How wonderful Jesus is. How he's such a God of grace that he would restore and reconcile this woman when everything in the world says otherwise. But the story brings us to something beyond that. This story should convict us much more than we realize. This, this story should convict us because we in many ways are like the, the disciples. They, they can't fathom what is going on here. They, they can't fathom what Jesus is doing. They don't understand it. They, they have no categories for a God like this and Jesus like this to be a restore beyond things that they thought could never be restored. And barriers that they were very much willing to keep up. And, and we function so much like this in our life. Now, here's a thought that Alan Hirsch gives. He says this, and I think it's pretty fitting for this story. He says, if we're going to impact our world in the name of Jesus, it will be because people like you and me took action in the power of the Spirit. Ever since the mission and ministry of Jesus, God has never stopped calling for a movement of what? Little Jesuses, right? That, that's our calling as the people of God is to emulate our Lord and Savior. And this is a picture of what He does we are called to do the same. And it says to follow him into the world and unleash, I love this, unleash the remarkable redemptive genius that lies in the very message we carry. In other words, our, our mission is to release this act of redemption and reconciliation to everyone that we come across. And it says this, given the situation of the church in the West, now, does he say that in a positive or negative light? Pretty negative light. Given the situation of the church in the West, in other words, the Western church is not doing that well, he says, much will now depend on whether we are willing to break out of a stifling herd instinct and find God again in the context of the advancing kingdom of God. 
In other words, it's only when we have a vision for God's redemptive actions in this world that we take on in our own lives, stepping away from any concept of herd immunity. You guys know what herd immunity is, right? Or herd instinct, not herd immunity. I've been talking COVID too much, obviously. Herd instinct, right? To stay together, our own little pack, be self-focused, not thinking about the outsiders, right? That herd instinct that he says stifles us. And he says, we need to see that God is advancing the kingdom of God. And we're called to go be people of redemption. We're called to go be people of restoration. We're called to go into the Samarias, so to say, in our own culture and context to offer the living water of Jesus Christ. The mission is very much ours to participate. It has always been God's desire to work with us. And so the story then really gives us a, a framework to understand what God is doing in the world. We, we realize that, first of all, Jesus always had his mission set before him. Even to the point of, of stepping through a territory that was hostile, that was antagonistic, that was threatening. Jesus had a cause that he said, this is what I have to do. And we too in our lives, we should always have a missional framework of understanding. We realize that God has called us to a mission. And the framework of our life should always be seen through the mission that God has given us. And we see that what God is doing then is, is reaching people and he's trying to restore people, um, restore especially people that are outside of this herd that we have and people who are longing for the restoration with God. And so this is what we realize as part of our calling as the church is just, just as God and Jesus in the story was so actively reaching to redeem and to restore this woman, we too have the same calling of, of not just sitting back but actively reaching to restore people around us. When, when God desires to restore people to himself, he uses his people. He uses the church. And we need to understand that as part of our calling that God has placed before us. And so it satisfies God to accomplish this mission of redemption. And we too should experience that same satisfaction. Uh, let me close in light of that in prayer. Gracious Father, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who has sought after us. What a powerful reality that is. Even in the, the story of Jesus and the woman, you, you tell her that the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You are seeking, you are reaching after people who need to be restored to you. And Lord, I pray that you would give us that same heart, that same calling, that same mission, that Lord, there's so many people around us who simply need to be sought after. And Lord, often it will take risk, it will take pain, 
It will take trials because there's so many barriers that often keep us from people. And yet we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would break those barriers down so that we could work at restoration. And so I pray that you, our God, would just reframe our minds, reframe our understanding of what it means to follow you. That as we not only understand the gospel, let us be sent by the gospel to be a people who reach and restore those for your glory and your kingdom. Lord, each and every one of us can think of of so many people in our lives that are just like this woman. A woman who is fearful of being fully known, uh, have a fear of rejection, have a fear of ridicule. Lord, ridden by guilt and shame in her own life, questioning if anyone can truly love her. Lord, we just pray that those people in our lives, just like this woman, that we would reach out to and love them in such profound ways that they would have a conclusion just like this woman. You must be Christians. <laughs> this woman said, you must be the Christ. That's the only conclusion I can draw to this. May people around us know that we are disciples by the love that we show to them. Such a radical love that we do not see anywhere else in this world, but a radical love that comes from the love that we have experienced in you. May it be displayed in our lives so that people will come to worship you, their creator, their loving father, so that they can experience the living, restoring water in their lives. We thank you, Jesus, that you have given us the power to do so by your spirit. Let us step out in boldness for your gospel and for your glory. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.